So this morning I've entitled the message, Be Imitators of God. And as you know, we've been going through the book of Ephesians for the, for the last few weeks, and now we're getting into chapter 5. And in this chapter, Paul deals with some more instruction. The first three chapters, like I said last week, are about uh, what Christ has done for us and in us. And then now it's about what we can do, what, what this means for us, our instructions to live our lives because of what Christ has done in our lives. In the first part of this chapter, he talks about being imitators of God. And then in the end part of this chapter, it's all about husband, husbands and wives, which is very fitting after the, the, the seminar yesterday. So uh, we'll be able to, to reiterate some of that stuff. But uh, let's go ahead and uh, dig right into it because uh, I don't know if you've noticed, there's a lot in the book of Ephesians. There's a lot of good stuff. So uh, no fooling around. Let's get to it. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, this first statement pretty much sums up living a holy life. If you want to live a holy life, how many know you can't go wrong if you imitate God? If you do what God does then you're doing the right thing. But it even goes into more detail into how we're supposed to do it. How many know that imitating God doesn't mean taking His place and doing what He does? But it says, how do we do it? As beloved children. And I think everybody in this room has had children at some point, right? You guys, you guys ever seen how your children act? Especially when they were younger? With you? I don't know about you guys, but... When my son would imitate me, especially when he was younger, but even today, he imitates me in whatever I do. There was a time there when I was running all the time, and that's all he ever wanted to do is go running with me because I was interested in running. And there's been times that I've been interested in, in, uh, in, in video games, so he gets interested in video games. And then I get interested, and in, there was a time where I was doing some artwork in a, in a 3D program, and then my son wanted, he wanted to know how to do that stuff. Because your, your children look at you and they want to imitate what you do. And this is how we're supposed to do it with God. We're not supposed to try to act like God and be, you know, we're not supposed to, to imitate Him in a sense where we have the power to judge, we have the power to condemn, because we, we don't have those things. We're supposed to imitate Him in His character and in His actions. Just like our children would imitate us. So the question is, how do we imitate God if we can't even see Him? It's, it's easy for our kids, right? They, they see us, and they just do what we do. And you'll notice that about, you probably notice that about yourself. Did you wake up, you remember waking up one morning and looking in the mirror, and you go, oh my goodness, I turned into my mother. I turned into my father. It's because you've been imitating them your whole life. And unfortunately, for it's not even just the good stuff, it's the bad stuff too. You ever notice that? That's, you know, as a side note, that's why it's really important that we provide a great example for our children. Because they are going to imitate you. They're going to grow into who you are. So are you setting a godly example or, a, or an ungodly example? But that's not what we're talking about today. The question is, how can we imitate God if we can't even see Him? Well, the first thing that we need to do is we can look at the life of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 5.19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. If you want to imitate the Father, 
Imitate Jesus. Jesus said that I do nothing except for what I see the Father doing. That is actually why Jesus is perfect theology. If you ever have a question of what God would do in a situation, what God's will is for your life, just look at Jesus. We wonder, is God making me sick to teach me a lesson? Well, let's take a look at Jesus' life. When somebody was sick and they came up to Jesus and said, can you heal me? Then he said, you know, I'd really like to heal you. But you remember what you did last Tuesday? You need to be sick just a little bit longer so you can really think about what you've done. Did you ever see Jesus say anything like that? No, because that's not the will of the Father. So you know what? That's not how we should act either. When we see somebody going through a struggle or having a tough time, we need to recognize it that God wants the best for them and that we shouldn't look at them and go, oh, it's probably because of what they do in secret. It's probably because of these things that they do. You know, they, they have really bad acne because, you know, they probably sinned when they were a kid. You know, or, or, or that's why this happened to them. Because that's not what we see Jesus do. Or when we see people that are unsaved and they're, they're, they're behaving in, in a very unsaved way, we shouldn't stand out there and point at them and tell them how terrible they are and tell them they're going to hell because that's not ever what Jesus did. Jesus went and sat and, and ate with the sinners and the tax collectors and he loved them and he showed them the truth and the light. So if we want to know how to imitate God, we just need to take a look at the life of Jesus and we can imitate Jesus in our life. Matter of fact, the next scripture even begins to point that out. It says, and walk in love how? is Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you live your life in the same way that Christ did, willing to die for your brothers and sisters, willing to love them no matter what the cost, that's how we should walk. That's the attitude that we should take. And when we do so, we're imitating God. Because imitating Jesus, because he did only what the Father did. But everyone doesn't deserve that kind of love from us. I mean, have you seen some of the people in this earth? I mean, they just don't deserve that kind of love. But then we do well to remember that Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. That's Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners. While we were just like them. When we were unloving and unlovely and unlovable. When we were unsaved. When we were broken. When we were doing all those terrible things. The same stuff that they're doing. Guess what? Christ died for us, even though we didn't deserve it. Jesus didn't die just for the good ones. And I thank God for that, because some of the worst ones have made some of the most effective and powerful Christians that this world has ever known. So the question is, are we walking in an attitude where we would give ourselves up for others? Is that the attitude that you have? Would you sacrifice your own comfort? Jesus sacrificed his comfort in a serious kind of way. He was gashed to the bone with whips, with bone shards on the end, and metal shards on the end that would rip. I mean, how many of that's not comfortable? And sitting on a cross is not comfortable. He gave up his comfort for us. Would you give up your time for somebody? God came, God stepped out of heaven into, into earth in the body of a man for us. Would you give up your time for somebody else? What about your reputation? Would you risk your reputation because you love somebody else? I mean, think about what Jesus did with his reputation. They hated him. They stoned him. I mean, 
he gave everything up for us. Is that the, the kind of attitude that we're walking with? Or would you even give up your own life for another? Would you make the ultimate sacrifice for another? Because that's how Jesus walked. That's how God walks. That's his attitude and his character. We imitate God by doing what he and Jesus did. July 17, 2002, in an article written in the Associated Press, it says, 16 people, including three law enforcement officers, suffered minor injuries when the crowd at Dodge City, Kansas concert became unruly. The deputy police chief said concert goers who paid $20 for the seats to hear Tejano artist Pedro Fernandez became upset when they did not see the performer they expected. The imposter was exposed when the audience noticed the man posing as Fernandez did a poor job lip-syncing Fernandez songs. Authorities said when the crowd realized that Pedro Fernandez on the stage was not the real Pedro Fernandez, they became disturbed and the situation began to get out of control. Law enforcement officials in Dodge City were outmanned and had to call in reinforcements from the local sheriff's office, and police used pepper spray to dispense the crowd, and several people had to be treated at the scene by emergency medical teams. You see, this is what happens in a Christian's life. We're supposed to imitate God. We're supposed to live like God. People are supposed to look at Christians and see Christ in them. But what often happens is much like this scene here at the, the guy singing, they could tell that he wasn't who he said he was because why? His mouth wasn't moving correctly to the words. So They're like, wait a minute, this guy's an imposter. And not only that, he's not doing a good job at being an imposter. Christians today do that. We go to church on Sunday, we tell people we're Christians, and then the rest of the days of the week we live just like the rest of the world, all the while saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but you're, you're sleeping around on your wife. I thought you were a Christian. Or you're doing all the, I mean, you're doing drugs and you're doing all these things. They're being imposters. We claim to be Christians, but our imitation is so poor that people see right through it. And that's the, the thing that we need to be, we need to be imitators of Christ, but do it well. Amen? Then he goes on in Ephesians 5, 3 through 5, it says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So these are the kind of actions we just talked about in the last one, people being imitators of Christ, supposedly, but they don't really look like it. They're poor imposters. These are the kind of actions that Christians will do when they say they're Christians, but they're being a poor imposter. They're being a poor imitator of Christ. Because they're not serious about what they claim. It's just lip service. And not only are these types of actions not proper for saints... Which, which, how many in here is a saint? Yeah, everybody. Raise your hand. To be a saint is, is the, the, the Catholic Church has got it wrong when they, when they have this list of things that you have to accomplish, which is really quite incredible if you've read it because the Bible calls everybody that's, that's a lover of Christ, that's been born again, they are saints. That's what makes you a saint. It's because your identity is in Christ. So it says that these... These things should not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It's talking about us. 
not only are these, these actions not good for us, all these things listed here, immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, crude joking, all these, they should not even be named among us. In other words, not only should you not do them, you shouldn't even entertain ideas and talk about other people doing them. And then it says that there's no foolish talk. You know, we need to keep track of what we say. The things that, that we say, what's coming out of our mouths, can cause all kinds of problems. If you remember in James 3, 2-5, through 5, it says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire. We need to be careful of the things that come out of our mouth because your, your words are powerful. You can speak life into people and you can speak death into people. And that's what it's saying here is let no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking come out which are out of place. Because those kind of things can really hurt people. You know, you don't have to be filthy to be funny. Did you know that? There's a lot of comedians these days, if you want to turn on the TV and watch a comedian, they think that they, they can't be funny if they don't curse every three and a half seconds. Or if they don't talk about crude humor or sexual humor, all those things. I remember, I, I, you guys probably know about me, I like making jokes. I like to laugh. You see, I, I'm popping quips off all the time and being sarcastic. That's just who I've always been. And I remember when I used to work in a restaurant before I got well and truly saved, that was my bread and butter was sexual jokes and all those things. And, and I actually thought this one time. I'm like, man, what am I supposed to do now? How can I be funny if I can't use these kind of things? Because that was part of who I am. I, I like to be a funny guy. I like to make people laugh. And, and I actually thought those kind of things. But the truth is, you don't have to talk like that to be funny. You don't have to have those kind of things come out of your mouth to be funny. So how should we talk then? Well, the Bible says that we should talk with thanksgiving. We should be giving thanks for the people in our lives, for the stuff God's doing in our lives. And we should be encouraging one another and lifting each other up. And then he goes on to say, you may be sure of this. Where is that at? There it is. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. How many of the first time you read this, you're like, oh man, if I make a mistake, I'm out. <laughs> first off, I want you to know that he's, he's not so much dealing with the actions as the identity behind these actions. These are types of people. These are sexually immoral people. These are impure people. If you're saved, you're no longer impure. You've been made pure by the blood of the Lamb. Just because you commit a sin does not make you a sinner. You're a saint. The Bible calls you a saint because you've been saved. It's true, Christians sometimes commit sin, but they're not sinners, they're saints. In 1 Peter 2.9, the Bible says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You've been pulled apart from who you were. You are something else now. Your identity is no longer a sinner, but it's a saint, even if you should occasionally sin. 
Now it's true, as a Christian, sin in your life should be a very rare and occasional thing. Because you've been changed. You're, you're different on the inside. And what we do is a direct result of who we are. So you're only in this boat, someone who, who has no inheritance, is if you have not been saved. If this is your identity, if this is who you are as part of this world. But the question, and you'll see that Paul makes the same statement in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. I'll read that to you now. It says, Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes on to say, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of you. It's the same thing here. He begins to tell us how to walk. And he says, because people that walk this way, people who are immoral or impure or covetous, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But you do have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. You were washed, you were made clean, you were made brand new. So don't walk like that anymore. That's who you were, not who you are now. And something that if you do make a mistake, because sometimes Christians do, sometimes Christians stumble, one of the key is you've got to get back up. Don't stay down. You only fail if you stay down. And next, in 1 John 2.1, he says, My little children, and this is John writing, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I want you to know that He died for your sins. And even if you do make a mistake, He died for that sin too. But the truth is, you've been changed. Let's not live like this anymore. That's not who we are. That's who we were. Now let's walk like righteous people who are imitating God. And then Ephesians 5, 6, or 10, it says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's funny, any of these scriptures sound familiar? He was using a lot of them last night during <laughs> his preaching. <laughs> You know that people are going to try to persuade you to do things that you're not supposed to be doing? Especially right after you get saved, people are like, wait a minute, no, you used to do this stuff. Come do that. Come party with us. Come do these things. They're going to tell you, oh, it's fun. Come do this. It's fun, even though you know it's not right. Or they'll say, oh, it's not really that bad. Anybody ever heard somebody try to quantify sin? You know, as long as you're not murdering somebody, you'll be all right. It's not that bad. How much could it hurt? Oh, what about this one? Don't worry, God will forgive you. Listen, the Bible says don't be deceived. Those are people trying to deceive you into doing things that are unbecoming of somebody who's been made brand new. Don't be deceived. You know, Moses was tempted to live a life other than the life God had for him. In Hebrews eleven twenty four through 25 it says, By faith Moses, when he has grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You see, Moses was tried, somebody tried to deceive Moses and say, no, come, come over here, stay with Pharaoh's daughter, you'll have everything that you ever want. 
But instead, he said, you know what? I'm going to pass on that. Because sin, the fleeting pleasure of sins, while they, they, they seem great for a short time, they're never lasting. You always need more. They don't ever complete you. They never fulfill what you actually need in your life. It, they're temporary and they have no lasting effect. And then, not only are people going to try to deceive you, do you know that the enemy is going to try to deceive you as well? The devil is a liar. In John 8, 44, it says, this is Jesus speaking to uh, the, uh, the Jews there. He says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a liar, and he's going to try to convince you of all sorts of things. And you know that We'll even try to deceive ourselves. This is probably the biggest danger. Because you'll listen to yourself. When you're the one, when you're the one going, it's not that bad. God will forgive me. We can say those things to ourselves. The Bible says do not be deceived. The truth is that there are people that are deceived. They're going to receive the wrath of God. And it says here the Because of these things, this deception, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The sons of disobedience are everyone who's not saved. They're the the sons of the God of this world. And the wrath is going to come upon them because they've been deceived. Because they either may have not even heard or someone's told them about the love of Christ and how He wants to make them brand new. And someone said, oh, that's nonsense. Look at all the scientific evidence that there's no God. Look, that's not how it works. That's nonsense. It's deception. Or if there was a God, why is there so much hurt in this world? That's deception. And because of this, people are not coming to Christ. And because of that, they're going to receive the wrath of God. Instead of receiving the free gift of life, they will instead receive the wrath of God when, when Jesus comes back. And it's really sad because they have the same opportunity as all of us, but they're deceived. Someone's lied to them. But unfortunately, that's not an excuse. You're not going to be able to sit before God and say, but wait a minute, they told me something else. That's not an excuse. And then it says we're not to become partners with them. Did you know when you participate in the deception, when you let yourself be deceived as well, that you have, in essence, become a partner with those? You're propagating the deception? Let me give you an example. If somehow I were to get deceived to the point, and I've actually seen, I don't remember where I saw it, I watched some 2020 episode or 60 minutes or something about this pastor who holds church in a bar. Which, which actually I don't have a problem with that, but the problem is is they all drink during the service. Or there was another one I watched, and there's this pastor that just used the most awful language, and he would cuss at people, and he'd curse them out, and all these things, and he said, oh no, I'm just using the language of the day, and he thought everything was okay. He'd been deceived. But the problem is, is now people look at them and go, oh, he's a pastor, he must know what he's about, I guess this is okay. By being deceived, by allowing themselves to operate in that manner, they've become part of the deception. They've propagated it as an example of that. He says, don't become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light. You know, it's continuing on this one. You know, these people don't go, don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. But 
one time you were them, you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. You know, the fruit of the light is a result of being in the light. If you're in the light, if you get saved, if Jesus' light shines on you, the fruit of that is that you will walk in the light. And it says, all that is good and all that is right and all that is true, the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, that's the fruit of the light. That's how you should live your life once you get saved. It should be the natural result of being saved because you've been changed on the inside. And then it goes on to say, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Has anybody ever had trouble with that? Not sure what's pleasing to the Lord? You know, the truth is, is once again, we have to go back to the Word to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. In Hebrews 5, 13 through 14, it says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You know, when we spend time in the Word, we learn what is pleasing to God. You know, when you're a brand new Christian, you may not know what's pleasing to God because you, you don't know God that well. You haven't spent time in His Word, but if you don't ever spend time in His Word, if you don't ever spend time looking at Jesus and looking at who God is, you'll never know what's pleasing to Him. I mean, that's the easiest, that's the easiest litmus test right there is, is, does this align with God's Word? Yes, then it's pleasing to God. If it does not, it's not pleasing to God. We are mature and able to discern good and evil by being skilled in the Word of Righteousness. So I encourage you to spend time in your Word. That's how we can learn what is discern what is pleasing to the Lord because we have experience, we have knowledge to back that up. We can go back on His Word and say, yeah, this is good or this is bad. I... And then Ephesians 5:11 through 14, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So we just talked about discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. If it's not, it's evil in a work of darkness, and it don't, don't participate in it. You know, we learn to see those things. If it's not pleasing to the Lord, just don't do it. It's an easy, easy thing. And then there's, these, these, there's obvious things that we all know that are, that are harmful. Like there's obvious evil things, like nobody's confused about if going to a strip club is a Christian, if that's okay, right? Or we shouldn't be. If we do, see me later, I'll pray with you. You know what? We shouldn't find any Christians dealing drugs. We shouldn't find a Christian fencing stolen goods. I mean, those are pretty obvious, right? We all know those things. But you know, there's, there's some things that may not be so obvious when we look at them. And, you know, Christians shouldn't be found coveting their neighbor's things. Like, wait a minute, that's not near as bad as stealing. Well, yeah, it is. It's not pleasing to God to be, to be covetous. Christians shouldn't be found gossiping. Christians should not be found belittering and tearing people down or condemning them. It says, take no part in those unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Not only are we not to participate in these things, but we're to expose them. And to expose them is to recognize what they are and to stand against them. 
and we'll talk about it a, a little bit more in a little bit more detail, but what exposing them is not is plastering them up for all to see, talking about them all the time, pointing them out, and, and making them the focus of our attention. That's not what exposing them means. Exposing them is not done by speaking in great detail of what is going on. Paul says it's, it's shameful to speak of these things that they do in secret. That's how we know we're not supposed to just talk about them over and over and over. We're not even supposed to, to bring up these terrible things that our people are doing in detail because it's shameful for us to even talk about those things. <clears throat> you know, to speak about the details of these things can actually cause problems in other people's lives. You can cause those who are hearing you try to explain this terrible problem, trying to expose this terrible thing, that you can actually cause temptation to occur in other people's lives. It's actually a great problem with people who give their testimony. You ever heard somebody give their testimony and they spend about 90% of their time talking about how bad they were, all the terrible things, and they go into great detail about all these things they used to do, and they spend like the other 10% talking about what the changes Christ has made in them? And the whole time, all the people that were dealing with the same stuff start thinking about their past. They start thinking about all those terrible things they've been talking about. They've just been talking about it in great detail. And now they're tempted, and now they're drawn back to it. We're not supposed to even talk about those things. You know, it's one thing to say that I was delivered from drugs, but it's another thing to spend 20 minutes describing all the drugs you did and how you made it feel and where you would do them and who you would do them with. You get that there's a difference between that. It's, the, Paul says it's shameful to even speak of those things. Because it can cause problems. You guys know Pastor Jack Harris, who's uh, the one working in Iraq that we, that we partner with over there. I remember him telling the story of, of when he was a young pastor. He pastored out in Nogales. And uh, he spent a, a, a good number of weeks preaching on adultery. He wanted to you know, teach about that and help eliminate that from his church. But he found that when he preached on it for a number of weeks, that the amount of adultery in his church actually increased and it didn't go down. Because when you preach on sin, when you give sin the focus, it gives it power. Instead, if, so if that's not how we expose them, then, then how do we expose those things? If, we can't, if we're not supposed to point them out and talk about how bad they are, how do we expose them? Well, the Bible says that anything is exposed by the light when it becomes visible. You know, if you'll speak the truth into somebody's life, if they're, if they're having some rough, if they're doing these things, instead of spending all your time focusing on the bad things they're doing, give them the light of Jesus. Tell them what they would have in you. You know what? You could be free. You could be clean. Because the thing is, when you shine the light on something, in the darkness, they may not see how bad it is, but when you give them something else to look at, you shine the light of them like, wait a minute. They're going to recognize when they see the life of Jesus. They're going to recognize that what they have isn't good enough. You've exposed it, not by talking in great detail about what they're doing, but instead you've given them the light that shines on and it exposes it itself. When you show them Jesus, when you show them, you know, you can be free, you can be forgiven, you're loved, all of these things exposes the darkness in their lives. You know, when we were born again, the light of Christ shined on us. It says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And at that moment, we recognized all the, how many, I remember when I got saved, I, the light of Christ, and I recognized all these things, and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, 
I got some things wrong. And it was funny in my life because I saw these, this, these things. I'm like, these are the big things in my life. And I'm like, man, this has got to change. And, and Christ did a work in me and they fell away. And I thought I was like, yeah, as soon as those are gone, I'll be good. But the funny thing is, as soon as those were gone, I saw the stuff that was behind them. I'm like, oh man, there's more. And then Christ worked on those things and they fall away and they fell away. And I'm like, all right, finally. Wait, there's, you know, the, as the light was shined on these things, they were exposed in my life. And it wasn't because somebody came and pointed them out and told me how bad they were and described them in great detail, but because, because they were compared to Christ. It says, therefore, therefore we ought to walk in the light of Jesus. You know, when, when we arose from the dead, we were born again, His light shines. I mean, let's walk in that light. And to walk in the light is to walk exposed before the eyes of God, in the eyes of man. You know, when you walk in the light, that means the stuff that you're doing is exposed. You're not running off and hiding in, in the dark to try to do things that are sinful or wrong. When you walk in the light, your, your life is exposed to God and to man. Someone, an author, once asked Charles Spurgeon for permission to write his life story. And the great preacher replied, you may write my life in the, in the skies. I have nothing to hide. That's how we should live our lives. I have nothing to hide. You can do whatever you want with my life. Write about it all you want. Because he walked in the light. In Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We need to walk with wisdom as well. Ensuring that our actions produce fruit, using discernment to determine if what we're doing is pleasing to God, that's how we walk in wisdom. Be wise about what you're doing. And then it says we need to make the best use of our time. Make the best use of our time. You know, in, in the book of Psalms 90.12, it says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's funny, as I was preparing this message, I'm listening to him preach last night, and I'm like, yep, I'm using that scripture tomorrow. Yep, I'm using that scripture tomorrow. It was kind of funny. He, he used this one as well. But teach us to number our days. Because you know what? We live in an evil time. The days are evil, and they're coming to an end. And we need to, to work out God's calling on our life, and we need to live that calling out, because we only have so many days to do so. And time is going to end. And the question is, did we accomplish what God had for our lives? Or did we squander all of our time away? And then he says, don't act foolishly. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't act foolishly, but understand what the will of the Lord is, even more specifically what the will of the Lord is for your life. You have work to do. You know, the New Living Translation of this verse says, in verse 517 says, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. That's what I mean. Don't, don't act foolish, but understand what God has for your life. You have something to do. You have a job to accomplish. Number your days. Recognize that you have a, a limited, a finite amount of time to accomplish what God has for you. And then don't act foolishly or thoughtlessly. Carry out what God has for your life. 
And he goes on to say, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Who knows what debauchery means? I didn't. I had to look it up. Debauchery is excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. The New American Standard translation says, uh, uses the word dissipation, which means the squandering of money, energy, or resources. So getting drunk with wine is squandering your, your money, your resources, and your time away. Getting drunk with wine is the same as an excessive indulgence of sensual pleasures. How many know this can apply to more things than wine? There's a lot of things in your life that can fit that category. Food, football, video games, TV. Everything can fit this bill. Anything that you, that you allow to control your life falls into this. Say, don't do this. But he says, instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, the Greek word here for filled is actually to be made full or complete. It says, be made full or be complete with the Spirit. Basically, let the Spirit have His way in you. Instead of doing this kind of stuff, getting drunk and debauchery and all that stuff, be filled with the Spirit and be made complete. Let Him have His way with you. Let Him work in you and through you. And the interesting thing here is this, this verb that's used is a passive verb. That means that you have to, to let it happen. Basically, let the, the Spirit fill you. This doesn't mean that we go out there and fill ourselves. We don't go out there and grab a pitcher of the Holy Spirit and pour it in. But we actually have to permit the Holy Spirit to, to work in our life. Let Him work in you and let Him have His way in you. And when you do so, you're going to find that you, you set your mind on the things of God instead of the things of this, world, this earth. Colossians 3.2 tells us to set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on this earth. And then walking as wise also means to address each other with encouragement. Do not, or it says addressing one of the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We need to encourage each other, lift each other up. How many of those psalms and hymns are encouraging? There's not a psalm on the planet or a hymn on the planet that's going to put you down. But it lifts you up. And then it says spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. You guys know what, know what melody is, right? That's the, the notes of a song that make the song. So what are some of the things you need to make melody? One, got to be singing the same song. You know, we can make melody with the Lord. We're on the same page as Him. We're singing the same song. Tearing people down, not lifting them up, not encouraging them, that's not the same song. You're going to sound like someone beating a cat with a baby. That's not, that's not melody or harmony. That's, that's a terrible noise. You've got to be in the same key and in the same song to make melody with somebody. Amen? Amen? And then we should have an attitude of thanks. Let me read you some scriptures that the Bible talks about thanks. Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer God acceptable words with reverence and all. Let us be grateful for receiving this kingdom. Psalms 136.3 says, Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His steadfast love endures forever. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, I like this one because it says give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. 
That'd just be silly. But in those circumstances, thank God for these things. And these are just a, a three scriptures out of so many scriptures that talk about giving thanks to God. Because He is worthy of our thanks. And then it says, submit to one another. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We talked a little bit about this on, on Wednesday, what that means to submit one another. But uh, Philippians 2.3 says it like this, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Submit to one another. Count each other more significant than you and honor one another. Lift each other up. Give each other encouragement. And the Bible says that that's walking as wise. Ready for the good stuff? Ephesians 5.22-24 through 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, to their husbands. Every husband I know has this verse memorized. <laughs> wives, submit to your husbands. The first thing I want to point out is, wives, submit to who? Your own husband. One, this doesn't mean that, that, that women are supposed to submit to every man on the planet. And I've seen some men that think that way. But the truth is, the wife is supposed to submit to her husband. Because he is her head. He's the head of the, of the family. Some other guy down the street is not the head of your family. He's not your head. You don't have to submit to him. Second, then we have to ask ourselves, wait a minute. This is what all the women are asking. Why is there even this structure? Why didn't God say, you know what? Why do we need submission? Why didn't God say we should have a 50-50? Why isn't there 50-50 leadership in the family? Why is there even submission? Well, first off, God's a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. He's a, he's a God of order, not of confusion. Well, that doesn't make any sense. What are you even talking about? How does that apply? You ever been part of something where there's too many cooks in the kitchen? What gets accomplished when that happens? Not a thing. The thing is, is, is this doesn't mean that men are better than women. It doesn't mean that, that God loves them more, that He cares about them more. It doesn't mean that they're smarter, stronger, more intelligent, or any of those things. What it means is that there has to be a structure in, in the in the body of Christ and in a family so that it will function correctly. And the other key thing that I, I note here when I'm reading this is it says, <clears throat> wives, submit to your own husbands, but then how do you do it? As to the Lord. This is important. This is really important, as to the Lord. Why do we submit to Jesus? Why do we submit to Jesus? Well, we submit to Him because we trust Him fully. We submit to God because we know that He has our best interests and hearts. We know that He would never do anything to hurt us. So we can place our trust in Him fully. We follow His instruction, even if we don't understand it, even if we're like, why, why did He do that? Because we know that every decision that God makes is for our own good. We trust Him implicitly with our lives. Every Christian has because we're entrusting what we've given Him so that we can have eternal life. We've, we're entrusting Him with everything because you know what? If Jesus drops the ball, we're all in an eternal bad place. 
So you're like, wait a minute, what if my husband's not treating me this way? What if my husband's not treating me like the Lord treats the church? Here's what I know. This is God's word for you. Trust him. The Bible says, submit to your husband. Unless your husband is asking you to do something that's in contradiction with the word of God, then submit to him. Be a godly woman and God will honor you in that. It is godly for you to act as submission in that, in that manner. So in that case, what does it mean for a wife to submit? Does it mean that she's a doormat that has to do what she's told? Absolutely not. Does it mean your husband can take advantage of you? Absolutely not. Does it mean that you have no say? Absolutely not. Matter of fact, any smart husband knows to get his wife's advice. I almost said from time to time, but that's not right either, all the time. You know what, you're in a, wives, you're in a partnership with your husband. And your opinion counts. You have a vote. And any husband worth his salt will listen to what you have to say. It says, as the church submits to Christ is the model of you submitting to your husband. And I want you to know, Christ doesn't ask his body to do anything it's not capable of. He doesn't do anything to put it in harm's way. We're his bride and he cares for us. So much that he died for us. Everything that Jesus did was with his body and with the church in mind. We are at his forefront all the time. But ultimately, the head is what directs the body. That's why we submit to Christ. And, and in the structure that God has set up, that's why wives need to submit to their husbands. But you know what's interesting? The instructions to your wives in the Bible, there's a whole lot less of them than instructions to husbands. And I don't know if that's because they're smarter than us and don't need as much instruction. Or if maybe... <laughs> or if maybe... We have a great responsibility as husbands. And Ephesians 5.25-27 through 27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, as husbands, it's, it's funny. We like to joke. Anybody, some people here know more than others. I like to make jokes about submission. But the truth is, is this, it's a serious thing to be in the position of a husband. There is a serious responsibility and accountability for your life. You will give an account for how you behave as a husband. And the path that you lead your family down. Because if she's being a godly woman, she's going to submit to you. Which means that you made the decision in those areas. And that means you're the one they're going to be held accountable. Take a minute and think about that. That's a serious, that's some serious business because not only are you responsible for yourselves, but you're responsible for your wife and your family in what you do. And it says, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is not just in words, but in deeds. We need to lead in such a way that their trust is well put. Their trust in you, their, their ability to submit to you and trust you should be as sound 
and as qualified and as good as the trust that we can put in Christ. All of Christ's work in the church was because he loved us. He put us first and he endured incredible things because the joy set before him. Our wives are the joy set before us. And we need to be willing to do the same thing that Christ did for the church, for our wives. What will you endure in love so that she is cared for, that she is protected, and that she is loved well? You know, and the standard for that, the measure, the yardstick for that, is to the measure that Christ loved the church. That's where you need to be. You see, Christ's love was so great that he died for the church. His work cleansed us and made us pure. Because of his love, we were changed. You know, when he died for the church, he cleansed her by the washing water with the word that he would present her to God without, <clears throat> with himself, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Basically, Christ's love made an impact on the church. It made a difference in the church. And this is the kind of love that we need to give our lives. Our, our love for our wives should make an impact in their lives. Our decisions will impact their lives because they're godly women. And they will follow you because they trust you. Like we follow Christ. So the question, we need to make sure that we're leading them in a godly manner, that we're leading them correctly, amen? In Ephesians 5, 28-30 says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. A healthy person does not harm their own body. They love their own body. If you're a healthy person, if you, if you have a healthy mentality, even if there's an area of your body that you may not care for as much as others, you're not, I'm done with it, and just hacking your arm off because you don't, you don't think it's strong enough. A healthy person loves their body and they take care of it. Matter of fact, it's actually hardwired into you. Because when you walk up to the stove and it's hot, you retract your hand because you don't want to hurt your body. And when someone shows a, throws a shoe at you when you're in a... Uh, in a, in a political meeting, you duck. <laughs> because you don't want to get hit in the face with a shoe. You know, I once read that it takes no, no more pressure to bite the tip of your finger off than it does to bite through a, car a carrot. But we cannot do it because our mind won't let us do it. You can, you can try to bite down as hard as you can. Your, your, your body will not let you bite your own finger off. Because we're hardwired to protect our body. Because we love our bodies. We need them. You know, the same way that, that we should love our wives. Because they're a part of us. As we'll see in the next scripture, it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So whatever, you, because when you become one flesh with your wife, whatever you do to your wife, you do to yourself. And that's why he says that, that no one has ever hated his own flesh, but he nurses it and cherishes it. So you need to nourish and cherish your, wife, cherish your wife because that's the same as your own flesh. And that's what Christ did to the, to the church. And I'm going to wrap this up here on this last one. Ephesians 5, 31-33 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of your love, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know, when a man marries, he leaves his mother and his father, and his responsibility is no longer to his parents, but to his wife. And the same goes for a wife. When a wife leaves her parents and gets married to a, her husband, her responsibility is to her husband. You know, it's okay to still love your parents. It's okay to have a relationship. But your spouse is not your focus when you get married. They have a position in your life that is higher than any other, other than the position that God holds in your life. The marriage union is actually closer than the relationship of even children and their, and their parents. You become one flesh. And we need to live that way. Think about our wives, our husbands that way. You guys are one. Love each other well. Respect each other. You see, the ultimate summary of this whole last few scriptures of teaching is let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's living in harmony with God. That's living as God wants from your life. And you will have so much blessing in your life in living that way versus trying to live the way you want to do it, some other way that's not God's plan. So as we've gone through some stuff today, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in the book of Ephesians. And I went a little bit longer than I wanted to, but you guys will forgive me, I'm sure. But... Uh, <laughs> But let us resolve, let's, let's resolve today as we've listened to this scripture, these scriptures, this chapter, to be imitators of God in all that we do. Let's resolve, husbands, let's resolve to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, let's resolve to, be, to respect and submit to our husbands as, as we do to Christ. As one who loves you dearly. And husband, make sure you act in a way that reflects that. Don't let their trust be misplaced. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go ahead and stand to our feet.